0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Mark chapter 14. Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane on Nisan 15th, early Friday morning, and it's still nighttime in the early wee hours of Friday morning, and he's dragged before Annas' house, and he's given a work over there. That's recorded in John, and I'm not going to talk about it because it's only in John. We get here to Mark chapter 14, and we have Jesus. Has been moved from Annas' house into Caiaphas's house. Annas was the previous high priest, and Caiaphas was the current high priest. And some members of the Sanhedrin were there. Now, after the this hearing at night time in Caiaphas's house, the dawn came up, at which time it was legal now for the Sanhedrin to come to a legal judgment according to their rabbinic law. So they moved the Sanhedrin, the meeting of the Sanhedrin, from Caiaphas's house to the rooms in the temple where the Sanhedrin normally met. And then Jesus is again formally condemned. So that's what we're aimed at here. After that, he was turned over to Pontius Pilate and he went through the Roman phase of his trial. But right now we're only talking about Jesus before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, which took place in two movements. And one time, The first in Caiaphas' his house and the second in the Meeting room of the Sanhedrin in the temple. So let's start with Mark fourteen verses fifty three through sixty five. I'll read. They led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and the scribes convened. This of course is again in the high priest is talking about the Caiaphas the High Priest, not Annas, but Caiaphas the High Priest. Verse 54, we're going to leave out, really, because it's about Peter denying Jesus three times. We'll take that up in the next audio. So picking up again with verse 55, The chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they could find none. For many were giving false testimony against him, and the testimonies did not agree. Some stood up and were giving false testimony against him, stating, We heard him say, I will demolish the sanctuary made by human hands, and in three days I will build another not made by hands. Yet their testimony did not agree even on this. Then the high priest stood up before them all and questioned Jesus, Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But he, Jesus, kept silent and did not answer anything. Again the high priest questioned him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, And all of you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to beat him, saying, Prophesy. The temple police also took him and slapped him. Now there's one parallel passage in Matthew which is pretty similar to this. doesn't really add anything that I can... Well, yeah, there is something. It says that the high priest didn't merely ask Jesus, Who are you? Are you the Christ? The high priest adjured Jesus, put him under oath. So that's significant. We'll talk about that later. But other than that, Matthew and Mark are pretty close together. And since most of my notes are in Matthew, I'm going to go through the Matthew parallel mainly as we go over this. Now, neither Matthew or Mark talk about what happened after the Sanhedrin moved to the temple, and so we're going to have to go to After daybreak, and so we're going to have to go to Luke to check that out. And Luke also has a few details uh, about the meeting at night in Caiaphas's house, which I'll mention here. Said that Jesus was blindfolded when the, the temple police beat him, and many other things spoke they against him, reviling him, mocked him. It's not really anything extra. That's in Matthew and Mark too. So we're not going to worry about Luke. Until we get to dawn and the trial is moved, the kangaroo court is moved from Caiaphas' house to the temple meeting room after dawn. And then we'll let Luke take us from there. Alright, so let's now take up the narrative. I'm going to go to Matthew 26, starting in verse 57. And I'll read from Matthew. Those who had arrested Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had convened. Mark just had the high priest. Matthew has Caiaphas, the high priest, so that there's a unnecessary detail there. Now, let me go over the stages of Jesus' trial, because this can be extraordinarily complicated if we let it be. The NIV Study Bible divides it up this way. It says that the trial of Jesus had two stages, each of which had several episodes. The two stages were the Jewish trial, stage one, and the Roman st- trial, stage two, and I think that's a helpful way to look at it. So let's look at stage one, the Jewish trial, and the various episodes. The first episode is the preliminary hearing before Annas, which is recorded in John, and which we're not going to go over. Episode two is the trial before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, which we are going to go over. That's what we're talking about in this audio. And of course, that trial before the Sanhedrin was in two different places, once one, the first phase of it was of episode two was in Caiaphas's house at night and then it moved to the temple and then after Jesus was turned over to Pontius Pilate the Roman trial stage two starts episode one is before Pilate Pilate then turns Jesus over to Herod Antipas another Roman official Tetrarch of Galilee and after Herod Antipas finishes with Jesus Herod Antipas sends Jesus back to Pilate and Pilate finally failing to get Jesus off the hook because of the animosity of Jesus's enemies condemns him to be killed, so that's the overall overview of Jesus's trials. So let's go back now to Caiaphas's house. Why did the Sanhedrin meet there? Perhaps to ensure secrecy, so that nobody could find out what's going on. Remember, they're, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders are very scared of the crowd. Now, two days before this. The Sanhedrin met at Caiaphas' house in the same place to consult about how to put Jesus to death. So this was not exactly an unbiased hearing. We read in Matthew 26, verses 2-4, through You know that the Passover takes place after two days, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, And they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and kill him. So you see, they took him back to the same place of conspiracy. This was not in any way going to be objective. However, now, the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas were looking for a way to give it a color of law because they didn't want it to look like it was a lynch mob. They were going to judicially execute Jesus in a way so that they could at least proclaim hypocritically or proclaim uh, in a surface manner that Jesus had been tried according to the law. Now, Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas, the former high priest. These high priests were changed often. The Roman government would would kick him kick kick one high priest out and put another one in, depending on who was bribing him at the moment. So that happened a lot. Now, interestingly, in in the Sanhedrin, about a week before this meeting at night that we're talking about, Caiaphas had made a very interesting inadvertent prophecy in John chapter eleven, verse forty-seven through. Uh, 50, so the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin. So this is a meeting of the Sanhedrin. This is about a week before, right during Passion Week. What are we going to do since this man does many signs? If we let him continue in this way, everyone will believe in him. Then the Romans will come and remove both our place and our nation. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all you're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. Now, what Caiaphas meant was, we got to kill Jesus so that the whole nation doesn't perish because the Romans are going to come in here and take our kingdom away because Jesus is starting a messianic revolt, a religious movement that the Romans are not going to like, and they're going to take us, take our kingdom away, so for the whole nation, we got to save the whole nation by letting Jesus die. But ironically, when he said that, what he said was, it was to their advantage that one man should die for the people. Jesus did die for the people, but not in the way that Caiaphas thought. He died for their sins, and he kept the whole nation from perishing because those who believed in Jesus did not perish. Kind of ironic. So this Caiaphas is sort of a big, uh, a prominent character in this tragedy of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. Now, the Sanhedrin had within it all kinds of members. It was the political leadership of Israel. It had the chief priest. And that word is a little bit ambiguous. This probably means people like Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest, both current and former. It could be the chief, the head priest of the courses that came in from outside of Jerusalem every year to minister in the temple. But it's probably, I think it's probably people like Annas and Caiaphas. The elders, those were just political leaders that were elected. And teachers of the law, scribes, those t- tended to be Pharisees. And remember, these categories are fuzzy. They overlap. You could be a teacher of the law and an elder at the same time and so forth. So basically, we'll just say the religious leaders of Israel were all there getting ready to condemn Jesus. Moving now, skipping the part in Matthew, talking about Peter's three times denial. We're going to go to Matthew 26, verses 59 through 61. The chief priests of the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false testimony against Jesus so they could put him to death. Well, there's there's your objectivity. We're looking for false testimony. They could not find any even though many false witnesses came forward. Now, remember, according to, to the law, they had to have two or three witnesses, and those witnesses had to corroborate each other, and they couldn't get people to agree on what Jesus had done that was so awful, so blasphemous. Finally, this is what they relied on. Finally, two men came forward, stated, This man said, I can demolish God's sanctuary and rebuild it in three days. Well, Jesus never said that, but thats they finally got two men to come forward to say that that's what Jesus said. Now I'm going to show you why in just a minute that what they said was false, but let me point out to you that the law itself said that if if a false witness came before the Sanhedrin, that false witness was to be prosecuted. Deuteronomy 19, verses 18 through 19. The judges are to make a careful investigation... And if the witness turns out to be a liar who has falsely accused his brother, you must do to him as he intended to do to his brother. You must purge the evil from you. And I guess since these false witnesses are intended to kill Jesus, that means they should be subject to capital punishment. But, of course, that's not going to happen. I mean, the whole court should be subject to capital punishment. This was the the filthiest kangaroo court that's ever been convened in the sorry history of the human race. For one thing, it was illegal to begin a capital trial at night, as John Gill points out. This is not in the Law of Moses, but it was according to their Jewish rabbinical law. They weren't supposed to receive testimony of witnesses at night, but here they're doing it. Not only were they witnesses at night, they were false witnesses at night. They violated their own legal canons. Here's a quote from a rabbi, from Gill, quoting a rabbi. In pecuniary cases, actually he's quoting the Mishnah. In pecuniary cases causes they begin either for absolution or condemnation in other words we're not the the burden of proof is not really stated in a civil case but in capital cases they begin for absolution and do not begin for condemnation which means to put it in modern english is that in capital cases you have to presume innocence before you prove guilt well they weren't doing that they were pre- pre- presuming jesus was guilty before they before anyone might show that he was innocent and of course they weren't even looking for witnesses in favor of jesus They might have even previously bribed the witnesses, according to Jameson, Foss and Brown, although that's a speculation. Now, how weak was the Sanhedrin's case? Jesus' accusers had to go back over three years to find evidence of a sort. He made the remark that they tried to get him on on his first visit to Jerusalem. That was over three years ago. This was in John 2, verses 18 through 22. I'll read that to you now. So the Jews replied to him, to Jesus, "'What sign of authority will you show us for doing these things?' Jesus answered, destroy this sanctuary and I will raise it up in three days. Now that's what they tried to hang Jesus on. Therefore, the Jews said this sanctuary took 46 years to build. And, you, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus has made. Now, in the NIV study Bible points out that the witnesses in Caiaphas' house didn't actually reproduce Jesus' words precisely. No, they did not. The witnesses said, "I will." The witnesses quoted Jesus as saying, "I will destroy this temple." Actually, Jesus didn't say that. He said, "You, if you guys destroy this sanctuary," referring to the Jews, "you destroy it." So that was the first problem. They didn't quote him right. Not only did they mess up his words, they messed up his meaning, because Jesus was obviously referring to his body, not referring to the Herod's temple there. So they they misquoted his words and they misinterpreted his and distorted his meaning, and I'm sure they did it on purpose. Now, perhaps the original scribes had heard Jesus say that, they might have understood Jesus to mean a physical temple, but that misunderstanding didn't last long, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, because two days later, the chief priests and the Pharisees, after Jesus had been crucified, they went back to Pilate and they were trying to get his body uh, to get a guard put over the tomb. And they, in Matthew 27:63, we read this, Sir, this is we, the chief priests and the Pharisees are talking, we remember that while this deceiver was still alive, he said, after three days I will rise again. So you see already, Jesus' enemies are interpreting this after three days statement of Jesus as to refer to his body, not referring to him tearing down the temple. They didn't believe that. They had to be stupid to believe that. They didn't have any trouble correctly interpret, interpreting Jesus So, we see here the absolute illegality of the proceedings here in this kangaroo court in Caiaphas' house. They couldn't find witnesses to agree with each other. As Matthew mentions in verse 60, they couldn't find any. Amongst all the false witnesses that came forward, why couldn't they find any false witnesses? Because Jesus was entirely innocent. And Mark adds this de- detail in Mark chapter 14, verse 56. For many were giving false testimony against him, but the testimonies did not agree. So that's why, again, to have two or three witnesses to be li- legal evidence, evidence, the testimony has to agree. Here's a good quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown. But even in this they failed. And what did they fail to find a- agreeing witnesses? One cannot but admire the providence which secured this result since, on the one hand, it seems astonishing that those unscrupulous prosecutors and their ready tools should so bungle a business in which they felt their whole interest bound up, and on the other hand, if they had succeeded in making even a plausible case, the effect on the progress of the gospel might for a time have been injurious. In other words, if the Sanhedrin had succeeded in their attempt to give a culpable case, to make it a culpable action of law, if they had succeeded in that, it might have made Jesus look like a criminal or a blasphemer but they couldn't do it. They botched the job completely. Moving along in Matthew chapter 26, verses 62 through 63. The high priest then stood up, that's Caiaphas, stood up and said to him, said to Jesus, don't you have an answer to these men who were testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. Then the high priest said to him, by the living God, I place you under oath. I, or in other words, I adjure you, to use the technical, legal language. By the living God, I place you under oath. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. I'm using the Holman Christian Study Bible translation there. Now, we have an interesting question. Jesus was quiet at first, and then he talked later. Why? Well, the answer is, is because of that oath. By the living God, I place you under oath. According to the law, Leviticus five any time someone is put under oath, he's got to testify. Leviticus five one says this. When someone sins... <coughs> When someone sins in any of these ways, if he has seen, heard, or knows about something he has witnessed and did not respond to a public call to testify, he is responsible for his sin. Jesus, of course, to the very end, was very careful not to violate the law of Moses. Now, when Caiaphas asked him, are you the Messiah, he's thinking, of course, about a political leader, a ruler. The Jews did not really have a concept of a divine Messiah. As the NIV study Bible says, the Jews always conceived of the Messiah as a human. But Jesus, of course, then when he's answering the Son of God, he's answering as somebody divine, and we're going to show how he did that. He's going to show that, that he was claiming to be divine, not just a human Messiah, but, a, 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 but, but God, divinity. Why didn't Jesus answer before he was put under oath at first? Because he was contemptuous of the charges against him. He didn't think they deserved an answer. Jesus knew that this was a kangaroo court. He was going to convict him. What's the point of answering in a situation like that? Why did Caiaphas even bother to ask Jesus, was he the Messiah? I believe it's because he was trying to get a show of legal propriety. He's trying to get some words out of his mouth that he can use to hang him with, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown says. And, of course, Jesus wasn't going to oblige. That's another reason to remain silent. It was a kangaroo court. Why should I open my mouth and give give my enemies more? Actually, I really should be saying... Caiaphas would be watching the return of Jesus to the world from hell, looking up from hell, not in heaven, because I assumed that he didn't repent. And he, therefore, suffered the penalty for killing the Son of God. Reason to find something to twist and to hang me with. But finally, the high priest got angry and adjured him, put him under oath. Moving on to Matthew 26, verse 64. You have said it, Jesus told him, and you have said it means Yes. There's a lot of talk about that you say that I am, you know, in Luke, there's, it's even more ambiguous And Luke. Mark is very clear, actually. He, he just said yes. But you said it means yes. You said it properly. You said it correctly. I am the Messiah. So it doesn't come across in English the way it should. You have said it, Jesus told him. Yes, I am. But I tell you, in the future you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's a direct quote from Daniel 7:13. Now, here things get really interesting because this is a messianic quote let me read you the whole quote from daniel chapter 7 verses 13 through 14 these are two verses that anybody ought to know everybody ought to know these verses especially when you're talking about eschatology i continued watching in the night visions and i saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven that's he approached the Asian of days and was escorted before him Coming on the clouds of heaven is where Jesus breaks the quote off, but I'm going to go ahead and read the rest of Daniel 7 and 13 and 14, a verse which Caiaphas, of course, knew. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he, this is the son of man, and, of course, Jesus calls himself the son of man. Daniel calls him a son of man too. I saw one like a son of man. He, the son of man, approached the Ancient of Days, that's God, the Father, and was escorted before him, before God the Father. He, the son of man, the Messiah, was given authority to rule and glory in a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. If that's not a messianic claim, what is? His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. It's one of my favorite verses because that's talking about Jesus. Jesus is going to win, folks. I don't care how many social justice warriors there are and how many Muslims there are and how many blasphemers and liberal Protestants there are. Jesus is going to win. His kingdom will not be destroyed. Now, one thing to note about this quote in Daniel 7 is that Jesus reversed the coming direction. And when he talked to Caiaphas, he said, I'm going to come, basically, I'm going to come and destroy destroy the Jewish kingdom of which you're a part of. That's what he was saying. But in Daniel 7, he was going up to God, up to the Ancient of Days to receive his kingdom. But Jesus quotes it and turns it around and says, I'm going to come down to you destroy Jerusalem so that I can receive my kingdom, which has an everlasting dominion. Now, I stated that very glibly and confidently. However, this is a point of controversy in eschatology between futurist and es- and um, preterist, orthodox preterist, I might add, because Jesus said, I tell you, in the future you will see the Son of Man. Well, the future When? The future could be at the end of time, and that's how futures take it, or the future could be eighty seventy, which is how orthodox preterists take it. Before we get into that, let me make this point here. In the future, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power. It's the power of God or the, po- or the power which is God's is one, the way one commentator translated that. It's a little bit confusing. And coming on the clouds of heaven. The coming here, as I said, is Jesus coming down to Jerusalem. And what makes this controversial is when in the future is this coming going to take place. Now futurists love to hear that word coming and they immediately say, Ah, oh, coming at the end of the world, that is not you cannot do that. The word coming is ambiguous. I can prove this beyond a shadow of a doubt to a reasonable and to a moral certitude that coming sometimes doesn't mean coming at the end of the world. Sometimes it might, but not always but not always. And here I tell you it can't mean because How is Caiaphas going to see in the future the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God, the power? And how is he going to see him coming on the clouds of heaven? If you assume that that coming is at the end of the world and Caiaphas is going to die shortly and the end of the world hasn't happened yet, how is Caiaphas going to see that? He's going to be up in heaven. Of course, now the futurists could respond, well, Caiaphas sees it from heaven. Is that really what Jesus meant? You're going to be up in heaven 2,000 years from now you're going to see it then? That sort of takes a little bit of the punch away from what Jesus is saying. Actually, I really should say that Caiaphas would be looking at the alleged return of Jesus at the end of the end of the world from hell, not from heaven, assuming that's where he went for killing the Son of God. The futures can re- reply to that well. If Caiaphas is not going to make it to the end of time to see Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven, he's not going to make it to eighty seventy either because. High priests were usually appointed in their old age, say 50 years old. He was appointed in A.D. 18, according to Josephus. So in 87, he would be about 102 years old. If he was 50 in 18, you go from 70 to 18, that's 52 more years. That's 102 years. So he'd be 102 years. That's not very likely. And I agree, it's not very likely. But that's not what Jesus said. He's not saying, I tell you, Caiaphas, Caiaphas in the future, you, Caiaphas, will see the Son of Man. Because you have to go to the Greek and look at those terms, the words you. The, the words you refer to different people. All right. But I tell, you have said it, Jesus told him, but I tell you. I'm going to call that you number one. Well, that's a singular you in the Greek. I've got the Greek right here in my notes. It's "su," which is singular. You, but I tell you. Caiaphas, no problem. And then he says, in the future, you will see. Well, in English, it sounds like he's still referring to Caiaphas. But it's not the same. It can't be because that second you is plural. I've got it right here in the Greek. Who mean you. In the future, you. Plural, we'll see. Well, who could he be referring to? He's referring to the Sanhedrin. Remember, this is before... Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. So Jesus turns from Caiaphas and then he looks at the Sanhedrin and then he says, in the future, you guys in the Sanhedrin will see the Son of Man. Now that is perfectly reasonable because sure, that's a generation away. Some of the people in the Sanhedrin are going to make it and see their kingdom destroyed and taken away from them, which happened in AD 70. By the way, the NIV makes that plural you explicit. It says, and now I say to all of you, let's look at you number three. In the future, you will see the Son of Man. But I tell you, Sanhedrin, in the future, you, the Sanhedrin, will see the Son of Man. Well, that third you is obseste, which is the second person plural, plural of orao to see. Obseste. In the future, you, Sanhedrin, will see the Son of Man. So, it's not talking about, he's not speaking to Caiaphas that's going to see the Son of Man coming. He's talking about the Sanhedrin. Now, A futurist might object to this and say, well, you know, Caiaphas, it could refer to Caiaphas at the end of time. He could look at this situation in hell. Yeah, yeah, that that does sound kind of unreasonable that Jesus is referring to Caiaphas, looking at Jesus' second return from hell. But it could also mean that it refers to those whom Caiaphas represents. So when he says, you have said it, Caiaphas, nevertheless you meaning you Jews whom Caiaphas represents will see the Son of Man coming. Well, that's a stretch, especially for people who love to, who pride themselves on interpreting the Bible literally. Now, to show you that this is not an off-the-wall interpretation, I'm going to give you quotes from John Gill and Adam Clark, two well-known Protestant commentators. John Gill says this, quote, So Christ coming to take vengeance on the Jewish nation, as it is often called the coming of the Son of Man, is described in this manner. So Gill says, see there? The coming of the Son of Man is Christ coming to take vengeance on the Jewish nation. Now, Gil does allow that this might refer to the final judgment. I don't know how he does. I, I don't see how. I don't, You know. I, well, I gave you some possible answers. It could be referred to Caiaphas looking at the situation in hell or the Sanhedrin looking at the, uh, actually, it should be the Sanhedrin because the U, the second you and the third you or you plural referring to the Sanhedrin are going to see the Son of Man coming. Well, how are they going to see the San, Son of Man coming at the end of time if they Maybe from hell? That, that's a stretch. Or maybe the people they represent, the Jews they represent? No, I don't think so. But Gil puts, primarily says, in his opinion, the coming is the coming of the Son of Man in 8070, and he's no slouch. Adam Clark is also no slouch. Quote, You and this whole nation shall shortly have the fullest proof of it, for hereafter in a few years you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power, fully invested with absolute dominion and coming in the clouds of heaven, to execute judgment upon this wicked race. He's refer- Clark is referring it to AD 70, although he also allows that it, it might refer to the final judgment. I don't see how myself. Matthew 26, verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He is blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? Look, now you have heard this blas- his blasphemy. Now, it's obvious that Jesus has claimed to be the Messiah here because of the violent reaction which he provoked. When he quotes Daniel seven thirteen through 14 that's an obvious messianic scripture, and the high priest knew it, and he tore his robes and said he is blasphemed. Because Jesus had claimed majesty and authority belonging only to God, the penalty for blasphemy was death by stoning. Leviticus twenty four sixteen whoever blasphemes the name of Yahweh is to be put to death. The whole community must stone him. If he blasphemes the name, he is to be put to death whether the foreign resident or the native now obviously they couldn't stone jesus because they had no control over capital cases anymore the romans did so they had to turn him over to the roman government now tearing your robes is normally a sign of great grief or shock and interestingly enough interestingly enough in leviticus in the law the high priest was not allowed to tear his garments leviticus ten six. now this is in the context of a funeral mourning for a dead person so the context is not exact Leviticus 10.6, Then Moses said to Aaron and his sons Eleazar and Ithamar, Do not let your hair hang loose, and do not tear your garments, or else you would die. Leviticus 21.10, The priest who is highest among his brothers, who has had the anointing oil poured on his head, that's the high priest, and has been ordained to wear the garments, must not dishevel his hair or tear his garments. So in other words, he's not show mourning. And here, but this was a highly unusual circumstance. He was so overwrought with passion, he broke the law, at least ostensibly broke the law. He might have been acting a little bit, Adam Clark says, to get his audience worked up enough to convince Jesus. Now, as I said, you could make some arguments that Caiaphas did not break the law because the Levitical prohibitions referred to mornings at funerals only where you weren't supposed to tear your garments. And also, he might not have been wearing a priestly garment during the Sanhedrin. He might have been wearing something else that he tore. So we're not going to get Caiaphas for tearing his robes, but we're going to get him for judicially murdering Jesus, however. John Gill says these were not his high priestly robes. They were only worn in the temple. These were his ordinary clothes. But some people say, and some people say, that the tearing of the garments was an unintentional symbol of the rendering of the kingdom away from the high priest, as John Gill says. In other words, I'm ripping my clothes off my body the same way that God is ripping the kingdom away from the Jewish religious authorities. Matthew 26 verse 66. What is your decision? Caiaphas continues. They answered he deserves death. Now this was basically unanimous vote, but not quite. Mark says they all condemned him to be guilty of death. Now of course all can sometimes mean a great many, not literally each and every one. That word is extraordinarily ambiguous if you look in the lexicon, but here it just means essentially all of them because we know that we know that one person in the Sanhedrin did not vote to condemn Jesus, and we can logically reason our way to the fact that another member of the Sanhedrin didn't condemn Jesus. Well, who were the two that didn't condemn Jesus? Well, the first was Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, in whose tomb Jesus was buried. Luke 23, verses 50-51, through 51, There was a good and righteous man named Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, who had not agreed with their plan and action. He was from Arimathea. A Judean town, and was looking forward to the kingdom of God. Well, obviously, he's not going to condemn to vote Jesus, uh, uh, vote to condemn Jesus. And then, of course, Nicodemus, the famous Nicodemus of John chapter three, and the same Nicodemus who bought seventy-five pounds of spices to anoint Jesus' body with. Obviously, he would not vote to condemn him. But basically, the representatives of the Jewish nation voted to kill their Messiah, who had come to them to save them from their sins, and they voted to kill him. Now. Every form of justice was violated by this kangaroo court. Here's some examples. The judge became a party and an accuser. Did Caiaphas act like he was objective during this trial? He was looking for false witnesses? Are you look at him, he's a blasphemy, he tore his robes. Is that what an impartial judge would do in a trial? Did he examine the evidence to see whether Jesus actually fit the prophecies of the Messiah? I mean, that would have been easy to do. You could look at Isaiah 53, the fact that he came from Bethlehem, the prophecy in Micah. On and on and on. It's really easy to show that Jesus fulfilled the Jewish prophecies. Did Caiaphas even even once look at the evidence? No. What did he do? He looked for false witnesses to try to prove him. The trial was held at night. It was illegal. Jesus was assumed guilty and he had to prove his innocence instead of vice versa. So it's no surprise that there was a that all, as Mark says, all the Sanhedrin voted to condemn Jesus. Matthew 26 verses 67 through 68. Then they spit in his face and beat him. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you. Now, they blindfolded Jesus first. It doesn't say that here in Matthew, but in Mark, it says they blindfolded him first and then they hit him. So that makes the the mocking phrase, prophesy, mocking phrase, prophesy to us more meaningful because Jesus wouldn't know in the natural who would hit him. And so when when they say prophesy, they're saying, Well, just tell us supernaturally since you can't see. Get a revelation from God as to who hit you in the face. Total arrogance. This is the temple police, by the way, here doing this in Mark fourteen, verse sixty five. It tells us that. These are the Jewish temple guards, the security guards of the temple. They're under control of the Sanhedrin, and so at that meeting of the Sanhedrin before Jesus was turned Jesus was turned over to the Romans, the temple guards spit on him, spit on the Son of God in his face. Is there anything more degrading than that? Even today, you spit in somebody's face, it can't be anything worse. And they also beat him, and they slapped him, Prophesized to us who hit us. Now, Jesus, of course, did not comply with, he didn't answer who hit you. He just remained silent. And he also didn't threaten revenge. He did not curse at them. He did not rage at them. He just stood there and took it like a lamb led to the slaughter. Not only Mark says the temple police hit him Do uh, hit him, and. Mocked him like that but luke 22 verse 63 says the men who were holding jesus that's the temple police they already had him in their custody when they saw jesus condemned they felt at liberty to insult him at pleasure so they started spitting on him now i mentioned that spitting was a sign of extreme disrespect it was actually considered nause- nauseating by the jews junk in fact John Gill points out that one who spit before or in the presence of his master, a servant, was guilty of death. That was serious business. Job chapter 30 verse 10 says this, They despise me and keep their distance from me. They do not hesitate to spit in my face. This spitting in Jesus' face, by the way, fulfilled Isaiah 50 verse 6, which says this, I gave my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. Now, when Jesus is slapped on the face, John Gill says that was fulfilled in Micah chapter 5, verse 1, which says this. Now, daughter who is under attack, you slash yourself in grief. A siege is set against us. They are striking the judge of Israel on the cheek with a rod. I'm not sure that's universally accepted that Micah 5, 1 is a fulfilled prophecy here. John Gill says it, though. They are striking the judge of Israel on the cheek with a rod. That seems a little questionable to me. Now let's turn to Luke to see what happens after the sun rises and the trial shifts from Caiaphas's house to the temple room in the Sanhedrin where, excuse me, in the temple, in Herod's temple, the, the room in Herod's temple where the Sanhedrin met. We go to Luke 22, verse 66, and we'll go through 71. I'll just read verses verse first. I'll read verses 66 through 69. When daylight came, and that's a key phrase there. We're in daylight now. When daylight came, the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the scribes, convened and brought him before their Sanhedrin. They said, If you are the Messiah, tell us. But he said to them, If I do tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now, it's daylight, and this is very early on Friday morning. In the wee hours of Friday morning during the nighttime was when Jesus was at Caiaphas' house. Now we're at daylight on Friday morning, and now it is legal for the Sanhedrin to meet. It wasn't legal in Caiaphas' house. So they had to wait before dawn before they could get a legal sentence, before they could pronounce a legal sentence. Capital cases had to be tried in the daytime. Now, they had already pronounced Jesus guilty at night. What is your decision, Caiaphas had said at his house. At nighttime, they answered, he deserves death. But now they wanted to make it look official before the Romans, as Adam Clark says. Now, here in Luke 22, verse 66, it says, When daylight came, they brought him before their Sanhedrin. This is probably the whole Sanhedrin. The whole Sanhedrin probably would not have fit in Caiaphas' house. Probably some leading members of the Sanhedrin. But now they've got the whole Sanhedrin gathered together in all of its glory. Now, Jesus said in verse 67, "If you're the when, when they asked him, if you're the Messiah, tell us, he said to them, if I do tell you, you, you will not believe. In other words, he told them right up front, hey, it doesn't matter what you, what I tell you, you're not going to believe. This is a kangaroo court. It's, it's stacked against me. And then he said, if I ask you, you will not answer. In other words, if I ask you why these witnesses of yours don't agree, you're not going to answer me. If I ask you why you didn't look at the prophecies to see if I fulfill the prophecies, you're not going to answer because you don't care about the truth. If I ask you, how did I do all those miracles? You're not going to answer me because you don't care about the truth. So let me just sum it all up. And then he quotes Daniel 7.13. 7, 13, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. A messianic declaration from Daniel. Now, when was the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power of God? And by the way, that phrase, power of God, is a little bit confusing. It means seated at the right hand of God who is power. From now on when? After the resurrection, perhaps? After the ascension, perhaps? After the destruction of Israel in eighty seventy, I would say after the resurrection and, and right on. He's going to be seated at the right hand of God. Luke 22, verses 70-71. through 71. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? Again, they've already asked him this at Caiaphas' house. Hu- Caiaphas has asked him this at his house in the unofficial gathering together of the Sanhedrin. And Jesus had said, uh, Yes, I am. So they ask him again. They want to get it legal. They all asked, are you then the son of God? And he said to them, you say that I am. And again, that phrase, you say that I am, it, it, when it gets translated, in, it, it literally is literal in the Greek. It says, you say that I am. But what did the Greek person, when he heard that, he would think, yes, that's what he says. You said it. You said it, buddy. We said that in English. Are you hungry? You said it. Uh, it's exactly as we do in English. It means yes. Yes, I am hungry. Yes, I am the son of God. Why do we need any more testimony, they said, since we've heard it ourselves from his mouth? And by the way, if there's any more doubt about you say that I am, meaning yes, the reaction of the Sanhedrin proves that Jesus was saying, yes, I'm the Son of God, because they got so mad, they said, we've heard it. We don't need any more testimony. It's over. He's admitted it from his own mouth. He's blaspheming blaspheming out of his own mouth. Ladies and gentlemen, we now are finished with the Jewish travesty of justice as they condemn the innocent Savior of mankind and spit on him and mock, mock him. Now they're going to, get to turn him over to the Romans. Now in the book of Revelation, there are two main powers, two beasts, the sea beast and the land beast. The land beast is Israel, the sea beast is Rome. These are the two powers that cr- killed Jesus. They conspired together in the phony trial to kill Jesus, and, they, and so they both put Jesus upon the cross, the Jews and the Romans, just as the book of Revelation says. So we finished with the Jewish trial. We're going to take up the Roman trial in the next audio. I hope you enjoyed this particular audio. Actually, I meant to say we're going to go back and pick up Peter's three-time denial in the courtyard while the hearing of Jesus before Caiaphas was going on. We'll, do, we'll take up Peter's denial of Jesus in the next audio.